0: In my gravitational pull, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of folks that have varied beliefs. I've got atheists and agnostics, and I find it to be something, that I, whether God has a sense of humor or what, but all around, that's been something that's been uh, just a part of my life lately. So I began this little uh, project just because if you talk to, especially a 25-year-old kid, and if you're 25, maybe you resonate with this, you have a lot of questions, but trying to find the answers are like, it's like you let your faith get shipwrecked on the questions instead of doing the work to say, well, maybe there's an answer to this. Maybe I should really do... If I'm going to ask a question that hard, I really should work for answers. And so this uh, blog site that we've kind of worked on called Truth Conduit is basically really simple. It's just an aggregation of, of stuff from around the web that answers really difficult questions. It doesn't ignore the questions. God is smart enough. He's big enough to handle questions. Uh, we're not just throwing up the... Uh, the old school stuff that maybe you and I grew up on, the Josh McDowell's and the things like that, but like, you know, modern stuff, which has allowed me to have some absolutely fascinating conversations. I was engaged last night with a young guy from uh, Florida who would grown up in the church. He was actually on staff at a mega church. He is an atheist, homosexual uh, that is, actually I would say in his side he calls himself an anti-theist. And he's angry about his experiences with God. I had a conversation earlier this week with a young guy here in town who's 25 years old who grew up in the church, crazy for the Lord, loved him, and he's 25 and is absolutely uh, convinced that there is no God. And he's one of these guys that he'll actually, I don't know if he cut and pastes it, or but he's, then don't tell me this because I know that, and don't tell me this because I already know that kind of kids. But in my conversations with him, the good news is, is that the gospel is still The answer for their questions. One of his thoughts was, well, this week, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of sin in the world, a lot of sin in the church, right? Nobody would argue with that. And he says, well, that's proof that there is no God. And I, was, I, I challenged him on it. He said, no, no. And he, he threw up some infographic that he had cut and pasted off of some site and said, no, no. Look, in the educated world, where we're, where we're educated, it says that we are, uh, the crime is lower, that there's lower crime in educated Uh, countries. And my challenge to him was, what if that was because we're smart enough to start to call things that used to be crimes, not a crime anymore. So education doesn't mean that we're getting less of it. Education just means that we're just calling it something else so it doesn't show up in a stat anymore on your fancy little infographic. And what if being educated actually makes us better at it than if we were uneducated? And so I suggested to him that a few years ago, there were some clowns in Washington, no offense to clowns, um, who decided that everybody in America should own a home. And so to do that, everybody, no matter who you are, it was your right to own a home. And so to do that, they got in touch with some bankers and said, hey guys, we'd like you guys to figure out how to do this We're going to start some uh, programs. There's going to be Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae and halfway in between Mae. And we're going to back it all. Everybody can get a home now. So the banks are like, absolutely. We'd love to do this. And what if, as the banks, we actually start working together and we start bundling these loans. So now we're going to make a loan to people who need a house. But then we're going to bundle them together. So you've got an educated politician and an educated banker saying, this is a great idea because home loans are safe. To invest in a home loan is one of the safest things. So what if we put a bunch of them together, really safe, sell them to investors, who then created this thing called credit default swaps, which as best I can tell, is betting for and against the thing at the same time and expecting that to pay off. So they create credit default swaps. And before you know it, the mortgage guys in town here were saying, hey, all over the country, we want to give you a loan uh, we want to give anybody a loan. We got to give more loans because we're selling them as fast as we can get them. It's why, if you remember, maybe a few years back, if you did a mortgage, you got a letter a month or two later that said, hey, we're the new owners of your loan. They knew they were going to sell the loan, so they weren't paying attention to the, the details of it. There, In fact, mortgage brokers would hey, you could fudge this here and write this here because that way you'll, you'll be for sure to get it. So that a $15,000 a year strawberry worker in California could buy a $500,000 house. True story. It happened all over America. Then people like us were thinking, Man, just down the street those guys bought that house for a buck eighty. They sold it for two hundred seventy in a year. We should do that, so we would go and buy a new home we 'd sell ours and we 'd make some money and then we 'd buy the bigger one and the better one and we 'd throw maybe one hundred percent of it down, or even worse, we would then finance against that, and one hundred percent of our equity in our home is now gone because the banks were just throwing money like it was candy in a shriner parade. The American homeowner was like, we're in. We're going to get big and rich and we're going to make money. The average home over the history of this country would uh, would appreciate by 3% a year. That's history. The last few years before the crash, it was 10 20 30%. If you ask financial people, they're saying right now that where the bottom of this is is that when the house is hit the average of the 3% when it adjusts back to that. That's where the bottom of this will be. But we're buying homes. They're down the street buying homes. And before we knew it, we were all making uh, a lot of money. And before we knew it, the entire global financial structure was resting on the top of your roof. And you thought hail damage was bad. So that ultimately what happened is what was supposed to happen is that a bubble formed and our economy has collapsed over the last three years. And I would say to you that education wasn't all that helpful in this because you had a politician who wanted to, perhaps for noble reasons, but probably more likely for selfish reasons, say, I want to get reelected. So you got Barney Frank on national television two weeks before Fannie Mae crashes, saying, no, no, it's fine, invest in it. Selfishly, you've got bankers who were greedily saying, yeah, we're going to make more money on this thing. And then humans, just in the regular Johnny, you and me down the street, we're falling to the sin of covetousness, wanting something bigger and better. Coveting simply means wanting more of what you already have enough of. Sin, educated people. And so we look for education. Is that the problem? Or is that the salvation, the solution for these problems in our society, for the problems in our church? Or maybe it's uh, litigation. Maybe an educated person could, in the court system, do this. So if it's not education, perhaps it's litigation. And so in 1973, we had these very educated judges litigate with this educated lawyer and her educated clients to decide hey, We want to allow this educated doctor, through litigation, to have the right to kill a baby. Abortion. So that 30 years later, 50 million babies' lives have been lost in our country due to an educated, litigated society. I would challenge and say that education Litigation, legislation is not the answer to what's going on in our society. There's an argument that could be made that the church was asleep at the wheel. But we live in a fallen world. And we live in a world that if we're looking to education, if we're looking to litigation to solve this kind of a problem, we're looking to the wrong place. When we look to the church, if you remember in the, uh, (laughs) for most of the church history, we had the angry preacher syndrome. When I grew up in the uh, 80s, I played in the church band, and we had to wear a tie every Sunday to church. If you're going to be on the stage, you had to wear a tie, uh, because it uh, doesn't it say in Job that uh, that into God's presence that Job, when he was, he, he dressed up himself. And what it really says is God was mocking Job, saying, hey, if you're so smart, you dress up and you do the job. But we tortured that just enough to say that, no, i got to wear a shirt and a tie, and we can't listen to the rock and roll music. Now, I grew up, Mo and I were talking this week. Mo, I think, grew up in the church where actually even Christian rock was a, no, was a no-go. Uh, we at least had the Christian rock, but then the regular rock was a no-go. We did the uh, the, the tape-burning parties, which is a total bummer, because I had to rebuy most of them again when I got to Bible college, so it cost me. But, uh, but we, maybe you didn't do that, but... We, we thought that that was, if we put these rules and these regulations in place, and what we were saying was, we weren't looking to education. We weren't looking to legislation or litigation. We were looking to indoctrination, saying, you do this and that, and indoctrinating you and I would be the way that we could prevent these problems. Now, it's easy to make fun of the way that maybe we grew up because it's so obvious now to us, like, oh, man. Stupid was I. I had my hair cut above my collar at Bible college because it said I had to while we stood by a picture of Jesus with long hair with no sense of irony at all. We missed it so bad and it's so easy to look at it, but I wonder if in our world today that our challenge as a church, our challenge as a body of Christ is to not become part of the indoctrination where we're just living by moral principles, a moral code, because that's not Jesus, that's not the gospel, that's just trying to live nicely to work and play well with others. And so this idea became that we needed to have a cool pastor. And so as to not offend anybody, the part of the cool pastor will be played by Rain Wilson. (laughs) And with the cool pastor, the idea was that I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to say something that's too harsh or too this. And so we're just going to do uh, your best life now stuff. It's the five easy steps to this or to that. And we wanted to, to be sensitive to seekers even though scripturally it says that no, there are none who seek me, no, not one. But we want to be seeker-sensitive in case somebody didn't listen to Jesus on that one. And we wanted to keep it uh, open to everyone. Now, have you ever played tennis? Uh, incidentally, I have not. Um, often. But the, the, the place you don't want to stand on a tennis court is in the middle where the ball bounces. Worst possible place to be. You want to be back here? or up front, but in the middle where it bounces is a terrible place to be. But where we stood as a church for the last couple of decades was right in the middle, right with the ball bouncing. We had them just flying by us every which way but loose and not realizing it because we had redefined the goal. It was indoctrination. We wanted to grow. We wanted to grow quickly. We wanted to grow bigger and better because that's what was supposed to be. Not listen to the Holy Spirit, but that. And so before we knew it, across the country would be multi- Million-dollar facilities because we wanted to be comfortable. I, look, these these are like ten bucks and they suck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we all we should have like a Benny Hinn line every week to heal people for their back problems after this. But <laughs> but I would challenge you and say you guys aren't necessarily consumers in this because otherwise you'd be look where's the cup holders and the pads and stuff and and and, and don't. Hear me wrong, but I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a cup holder. What I'm saying is, there's wrong as if our goal is to reach people because we want to make them comfortable, and then we can, you know, the, the bait and switch thing happens. Because the problem with that has been simple, and that is that now you see videos on, on church websites, and you probably think it's weird that a church meets in a school and a, a pastor wears jeans. But we're different down here, and no, we're all doing this right now. That's pretty much everybody. That's not different at all. That's kind of normal now. But it's the idea that if I create this culturally relevant thing, that then I can get people to come and sell to their needs. And, and as a church, I'm not, I don't want to, to uh, uh, speak poorly of any of our brothers and sisters in our community. This is the Holy Spirit's job to speak to them, not mine. I am not Holy Ghost Junior. When I retired that position, a lot of peace in my life. Uh, the point being is that w- we as a church always have to be looking for these things in our lives too. Where are we selling to? The wants and the desires, as opposed to selling and presenting and planting the truth in people's lives. Because ultimately, what has happened is really simple. You get mad at me, and by the way, that's pretty easy to do. You can just march down the street and find another option. There's a lot of great churches with a lot of great cup holders and great video and audio visual and things. That... And what ended up happening is in our society that our churches grew to mammoth sizes, but the minute someone got mad or upset, they could just go and, and shop and say, well, I want to do this, I want to do that. And, and, and you know how it is. We, we all, the, the people are um, people. You're not, I want you to know, you're not going to be here forever at Conduit. And I know that. And at some point, God might call you on to serve at a church, I don't know, next door for all I know. That's okay. That's not what I'm talking about. And hopefully you know that. What I'm talking about is the idea of I'm just, it didn't give me what I wanted, so I'm mad and I'm going to go down here and get what I want. That's what church shopping is. And what has happened because of that is then we tried to sell more to those needs. And before we knew it, by 2008 to 2011, over 200 churches have filed for bankruptcy. Crystal Cathedral was almost $100 million bankruptcy. Cornerstone Church in Sioux City, Iowa, $8 million bankruptcy. New Beginners Church in New Boynton, Florida, $8 million bankruptcy. That was just in those three years, in the last two years, Hundreds more are either in bankruptcy or on the verge of bankruptcy. But banks are like, uh, banks are becoming landlords. There's a church in Kansas City right now that is a $1.8 million mortgage. They couldn't afford it. The bank has not recorded it as a bankruptcy because they don't want it on their books as a bankruptcy. So they're just going to rent the church out to a church now. The bank's become a landlord. So I'm saying that whatever these numbers are, which by the way I've gotten from the Wall Street Journal, they're way worse than they look on paper. It's all around us. And what happened is we thought that indoctrination was the answer. So if we get bigger and better, then it would make us do things like, wow, we should take out a $12 million mortgage so that we could you know, take this loan and grow and blow up and be huge. And it was so easy to fall into, just like any sin, just like any deception. We get to that world, and all of a sudden, this little, you know, a dragon is cute when he's in the backyard, right? But eventually he grows up, and he's going to burn your butt if you don't feed him. A $12 million mortgage uh, on a building, that's what that is. That eventually is going to grow up, and it's going to want to burn you unless you feed it. Darren, you're like, this is uh, a fascinating uh, trip. What are you talking about? Good question. I'm saying that legislation, litigation, education isn't the answer, nor is indoctrination, because bigger than the financial bankruptcy problem in our church is a moral and a spiritual bankruptcy that is in our midst right now. Our kids are growing up at rapid rates and walking away from the Lord. I know you hear me say this every week, but it's different than when you and I went to Bible college, because now they're not just growing up and saying, I'm going to try this or try that. They're they're saying, I don't believe in God anymore, and they are uh, adamant about it. They've grown up in the most well-financed, powerful church in the history of the church, and are walking away from the Lord. And I would suggest to you is because we thought that indoctrination was the rule, uh, was the was the solution. If we teach them moral principles, then they'll be okay. It hasn't worked because God never promised that it would. In Romans, He gives us the playbook. Romans one through five is about justification. It's about our lives being transformed. And as we look to that, we see that the answer isn't indoctrination, but it's transformation. That our lives, through the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, can be transformed. And the way that happens is that we are free from the penalty of sin. Romans 3 tells us, I'm going to skip ahead just in case you're wondering, tells us that the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is through faith that we would get this free from this penalty of sin. We're free from it. That in that sin in our lives that we've had, that we're free from any penalty of it, period. I don't care where you've walked from today. The, The blood of Jesus is big enough. It covers every sin. You have done every sin. You're doing it every sin. You will do. That is what happened at the cross for those that believe the penalty of sin. But not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Romans 6 says that these things that you've done are destruction in your life. And it's so true when you think about it. Actually, in Romans 6, he kind of talks about those things that you've done that you're ashamed of. What fruit did they have? They didn't have any fruit. And you're ashamed of it. And think about it. I don't know about you, but for me, everything I've ever done with it, I look back on I'm like, oh, man, I hope I never see her again ever, ever, from high school. Right? I'm, I'm ashamed am ashamed. The things that I did and said that that I'm embarrassed about always were a result of some kind of sin in my life, something I did. And he says that we could be free from the power of that, that it doesn't have to enslave us. That's what Romans 6 says that it is, and when you think about it, that's a true story. The things that I have done, Paul would go on and say, why do I do the things I don't want to do? He would say, you're free from that, from that power of sin over you, the penalty of sin. And then in Romans 7, which we're going to get to, is the preoccupation with sin. This idea, again, Paul, why do I do the things I don't want to do? When I am focused on, don't do that again, don't do this again, that's the indoctrination piece. If I have a list of things that I don't want to do, if in your journal maybe you have some rules, you might as well just tear that page out. I mean, how's it working out for you? I'm never gonna do that again ever starting now okay okay tomorrow I'm gonna live like this today but tomorrow then I'm gonna then then it's all different for me then because I am preoccupied with this sin in my mind I don't want to do this thing Paul would actually say depression he said what a wretched man I am and when I am preoccupied with that that's all it leads to when I'm focused on okay I'm such a jerk I'm such an idiot I'm it, it, it's the sin there's a word that some people call it the sin consciousness of it that isn't the answer either and so the question is really simple on our day like this if you are struggling with something in your life is what is it that God would have for us and Romans 7 says it so simply he says that it's we are it's different The law, this keeping rules, the regulations, the indoctrination is over. We live differently now. It's in the Spirit. what does that mean, Darren? That's a great question, and I'm going to answer it. In the New Covenant, when Jesus came, he set a whole new thing in motion. He said in Jeremiah 31 that it's no longer going to be about stone tablets, rules regulations, policies, procedures, indoctrination. He said, I'm going to write my will on your hearts and on your minds. And so when I wake up in the morning, if I am starting out with this new discipline of every morning I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to pray for an hour at 5 a.m. every day because that's what I'm going to do because that's a new discipline I want to do. And how has it ever worked out for you guys I mean for those of you who did congratulations you're probably also in shape and skinny but you, you, the, the, how does it really working if I said to Shannon you get 20 minutes every day and I'm gonna schedule it and that's it but it's gonna be awesome just 20 minutes look in the eyes and well that's a dumb idea that no marriage works that way and I use marriage because that's what Paul says about marriage. In Romans 7, he talks about you were married to the law, which was this perfect husband, this perfect wife. And, you know, being around perfect people, you're no fun. You wake up in the morning and your perfect husband, and his teeth are gleaming and he's just yawning excellence. And it's like, the, you know, that's the law is that. And it's the law is because it's to show you that you're not perfect. When you're around perfect people, that's what you think, right? Half of the sermons I listened to growing up, the reason they were so, uh, put me where I was, was all I heard was that the pastor, and again, this is no fault of theirs. I really don't blame them at all. They talk about how they defeated the devil and how awesome they did this. And when this attack came, they prayed and it, it went away and you never heard any of the things that didn't go right. So all I knew was that, man, I'm not that good. So I felt, ugh. so I began to pretend to be somebody that I wasn't so that I could hang out with them not knowing that they were all pretending together rules and regulations you're just married to a jerk and here's what Paul says this is really interesting he would say in Romans 7 that the only way to get out of this marriage is to die is the spouse dies what did Jesus say that the only reason for divorce is uh is adultery uh he, he would say that there was that reason for it and or that you die the law is perfect the law has not cheated on you The only other option is for the spouse to die. And here's what's interesting is that we're waiting on the law to die, and Paul says that you die. And when you die, you arise again in the spirit. When you are baptized, you come up. It symbolizes what happened to your old man on the cross, and you're married to an awesome, loving spouse, Jesus. And in that, that spirit of him, and this is it. We're getting ready to land this thing is this. You, when you are living in the Spirit now, I wake up in the morning, you wake up in the morning, and we have the opportunity to, out of a loving response to a Savior that has done what He's done for me, to say, what do you want me to do today, Lord? What is your Spirit speaking to me today? Not on the big grand. What do you want me to be when I grow up? How about breakfast? Let's start there. Is there an opportunity this morning, Lord, that you'd have for me? Can I speak to my wife better than I did last night? Can I... How can I serve? How can I love you, Lord? And as the Spirit speaks to you, just follow Him. And it's not focused on what am I not going to do today. Focused on what can I do today? How can I serve you, Lord? How can I love you, Lord? How can I unload a trailer at church? It can become work if it's not about the relationship with your father, with your spouse, with Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but when we you were know, growing up, sometimes we had to clean the car, you know, wash the car for dad, and that's kind of a pain in the butt. If you're a teenager, you maybe you've had to do that. But what happens when dad says, hey, you can take the car out and uh, take, uh, take her on a date tonight? I mean, you're out there spit-shining it, and you're excited about it. It's about love. <laughs> it's about this relationship thing. That's what he's saying. That's what the life in the Spirit is. That I don't have to bow to this rules and regulations any longer. And I don't have to be a slave to this sin. And here's what I'm landing on. And that is that for a long time, I thought freedom in Christ meant freedom to do whatever I wanted. Whenever I wanted. And Paul would actually say, Hey, everything's lawful now, but not everything is profitable. It was a few years ago. When I, was, uh, I had first discovered my freedom in Christ, maybe you guys might uh, remember your days when you discovered your freedom in Christ. Maybe some of you are right in the middle of it. I was going to meet an important client. I had just taken a job at a very large company, very prestigious firm, and, and they had told me that uh, I, I, they wanted me to sign this client, and so it was April of 1998. I was at Ruth's Chris at downtown, and I was a little bit early, and I remember this because the uh, Columbine shootings had happened, and it was on the news. So, I was sitting there at the bar waiting for the meeting to happen. Freedom in Christ. God said that uh, when, when I was growing up, they said, don't drink. But I realized, oh, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, don't be drunk. So, my church just said, well, don't drink at all then. Don't ever drink. And as I got older, I thought, well, that's not what it said. Sidebar, if the spirit is leading you in that direction, don't do it. But don't force that on someone else. That's the law. What it says is don't be drunk, and for some of you, that's what you shouldn't do because of, of some, some struggles you've had with addiction. For some of us, that's food. And I appreciate, I think it was Kyle uh, Froman that posted not long ago that, it's see, uh, something about don't judge me for a sin just because your, yours is different than mine, or you know. So as I stand here, I'm not, you know, saying that that might be mine and that might be yours, but I'm not gonna put onto you, don't ever eat. So that's what I need to do. I need to find out what, what, where my struggle is and yours and my sin. That's it, I'm sitting at this bar with a vodka sour. Now the thing about vodka sour is there's no middle ground. There's no such thing as a vodka buzz. You're normal, and then you're singing German love songs, standing <laughs> on a table, and you don't even know German. So I'm sitting at this bar, about to have the biggest meeting of my career with the biggest uh, this this big prestigious agency, my new boss, and and we're sitting there watching, and they kept pouring, and 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 I realize. <laughs> I'm hammered, and I've got to go in and have a meeting with this client and with my boss, and I'm like, oh no. And I'm sitting at the table, and you know how you drunk people are. You're, not, you're drunker than you think you are, always. So I look back and I think I wasn't that drunk. I knew I was kind of, but let me tell you what. When my new colleague leans over and puts her hand on my wrist and says, are you okay? I was hammered. Okay. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I went to the bathroom. I was splashing cold water. I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm going to call my mom. That will sober me up because my mom, you know what going to if you talk to your mom, she's not going <laughs> to. So I'm gone for like 20 minutes <laughs> trying to not be an idiot. I'm like, oh, I'll be right back. <laughs> Standing outside of Ruth's Chris in downtown Nashville at Gospel Music Week, hammered. I did not sign the client that night. All things are lawful. Not all things are profitable. I made a huge mistake. Here's what freedom in Christ means. It does not mean freedom to sin. It means freedom from sin. I don't have to do that stuff. I don't have to make a fool of myself. I don't have to call the next morning to apologize because I was an idiot. I do not have to apologize to my wife because I was a butt. I do not have to blow my stack at my kids I am free from that and the struggle is is that I in my mind don't know that and so I tend to just fall into this stuff and Paul says you don't have to you're free from it and here's how we do it by living in this new thing this spirit this love relationship with Christ when I blow it there is forgiveness absolutely but I don't have to because I can be transformed By the renewing of my mind that's coming up in Romans 12. What I wanted to just tell you this morning is you're free. I'm free. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to be miserable. Anything in your life that makes you think that you do is just a lie that you are believing. Know that he paid for that freedom. It's not legislation. It's not education. It's not indoctrination. It's transformation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it says that the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. All we have to do is access it. All we have to do is acknowledge it and realize this idea that I can't quit this, I, keep, I can't, I can't, that's just a lie that the enemy's thrown into your life. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to be enslaved, embarrassed, and embalmed, as Romans 6.20 says. You can live free, and I want to celebrate that today. We can celebrate the freedom of our country, but let me tell you what, hundreds of years from now, who knows what America will be, but I know it will be free, walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, because he loved you that much to offer you a freedom that no longer became about you having to just keep the rules it came about a relationship with you. Would you pray with me? Father, would you come and be with us this morning as we worship you? We love you so much. Would you bring freedom to us this morning? Would we find those areas of our lives and acknowledge that we're free? And instead of trying to get smarter about it, instead of trying to make laws about it, that we just acknowledge that your spirit is what, is what sets us free. Your power, your spirit, it allows us to no longer be slaves to embarrassment, slaves to shame, slaves to an old way that just causes nothing but destruction. Thank you so much for that power. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.